Welcome to the Good, the Bad, and the Sequel Q&A. My name's Doug. So the next sequel that we're going to be talking about is our first time going to the Star Wars universe. It's Ewoks, The Battle for Endor, free on Disney+. Plus. I'm super excited to be able to talk to talk with Jamie about this one. I don't know how he's going to like it. He's not a big Star Wars, Star Trek fan, but I'm really excited. I love Star Wars. I love Return of the Jedi. So Ewoks are for me. Um, I'm pretty excited. I'm pretty, pretty excited. Had an extra pretty in there to chat with this week's guest, composer Peter Bernstein. Wow, these two movies—the Ewoks and the and the sequel, The Battle for Endor—those are like the big moments in his career. That was like his uh, flagship. We kind of talked about that. I love asking people that question. What was like that turning point or role or thing that you did that? People would look to be like, oh, he did that. So that was like his big moment. Cool story about how that all came to be and uh, just the the process for, you know, coming up with it for a franchise that had a, had a composer that everybody knows, you know, at that point. So, yeah. So, man, Peter talked about it from the beginning, his love of rock and roll, being in bands, just being around music for so long, how he got his, how he got started, even though, though his father's legendary composer Elmer Bernstein it's not like that was his first thing that he thought about doing it was more rock and roll but uh his transition to that working on amazing films over the years especially the comedies that he did to his dad with a connection of John Landis because Peter went to high school with him there's so much so so many good stories in this so I'm gonna shut my yapper but do me a favor if this is your first time here please subscribe wherever you're listening Share, tell your friends, tell your enemies, just tell anyone, just anyone at all. And follow us on all social media at sequels only and subscribe on YouTube. Lots of instructions. So I'm not going to repeat it again. You can go back 15 seconds. Let's do it again. But uh, without further ado, here is composer Peter Bernstein. So yeah, so what I like to do with these, the most, imp- my favorite thing is how people got started in in the business and you know, those early memories, like the big breaks, but there's always that beginning, like the influence. So obviously with your father, you had influence not too far, like far away. Like at what, at what age, like when you're growing up, do you realize like who your dad was or like the movies, like when you connect the two, like, Oh, my dad does this, that music. Well, I don't remember when, because it was too early. It was, yeah. I I would say that, you know, it didn't feel unusual to me. Just, you know, that's what he did. I went to a small private school here in Los Angeles. And in that private school were the children of several other big-time Hollywood composers. Oh, wow. Felt completely normal that somebody's father would have an Academy Award nomination every year. That, I'm a kid, so that's reality, and that's what everybody does. So it didn't, yeah. you know, it didn't dawn on me until much later that for most people it wasn't like that. Yeah, I talked to Sandy Hackett, uh, Buddy Hackett's son. And yeah. He told me when he was like, he knew that his dad was like this really funny guy, but like at home he was like a cut up. But he said he saw him in I'm trying to think of the movie. It was like a cartoon slash movie when they're like slaying a dragon and his yeah. dad his dad's head gets cut off in the movie 
<laughs> and he, I think he was six years old and he like ran out of the movie theater crying. And then his dad came home like right after he came home from the theater. I was like, why are you crying? And he's like, dad, I saw your head get cut off. So, and that's back then, like, you know, movies are magic, more magical then than they are now. I'm not saying they're not magical, but, uh, so what age? So music is all around you. So I read your little bio. So you started piano. That was like the first type of music that you dabbled in. My kids have piano lessons, you know? Oh, okay. And then you said, no, I want to go right into rock and roll. Well, no, it wasn't like that. I mean, I was still doing piano and. You know, to, just to backtrack a little bit, I remember yeah. seeing my dad conduct um, the music from The Magnificent Seven. Oh, I was nine cool. at the time. And he was a very passionate person. So I was seeing him conduct with full-on adult passion, which is, as a nine-year-old, you know, the first time you see something like that, it's very impressive. Yeah, And I, the first time I saw something like that, it was connected with music. So that made a big impression. But as far as being a musician is concerned, you know, I took piano lessons. Maybe I had a guitar lesson. I don't remember. But when I was uh, uh, 14, the Beatles, 19, it was 19, well, 13, 1964, uh, the Beatles and Bob Dylan entered my brain, which exploded. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, nothing was, nothing has ever been the same since. And of course, I was at the exact right age, I was 13. So I was just at the dawning of being able to see the world, you know, and it, uh, it made a big impression. There was a rock and roll band in my school which had a bass player who had no clue what he was doing. And I looked at him and went, you know, I can do that. I, I know me, I know a little music. So I, I became the bass player. Uh, I didn't know how to tune it. I was tuning it wrong for a year. Uh, <laughs> I suppose I could have asked my dad, but you know, who wants to know what your dad thinks? Yeah. And, uh, and it went on from there. I mean, I was a rock and roll bass player, or in somehow involved in the rock and roll business for the next 20 years. Wow. Yeah. I saw some of the people you uh, worked with, like Linda Ronstadt and like some of the people that you did producing for. Well, I didn't produce for Linda, but I, yeah, I worked on, on some of her stuff and oh, okay. was in, you know, I was on the same scene as the bunch of people from California, Linda, the Eagles, Jackson Brown being the, you know, the main names. And it was all, you know, everybody was there. We were all young. So it was all cool. Wow. And, but for me personally, by the time I was, you know, getting towards my 30s, I was becoming aware that there was more opportunity for me somewhere else. Yeah. What were some of the bands that you opened up for? Did you ever open up for any of those? Oh, yeah, all kinds. Of, well, all kinds of people. Wow. I mean, you know, uh, were some of the memorable ones I, I don't know um you know you're making me think <laughs> how about this this might be a little bit easier what, what about some venues did you play up and down the west coast or tour the country everywhere everywhere nice everywhere the 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 east coast 
I think it was the old Orpheum chain. It's before your time, I think. Um, yeah. They were vaudeville theaters that were still in use. Uh, New York, Philadelphia, somewhere in Jersey, you know, yeah. down. Uh, same deal on the West Coast. Uh, oh, I do remember opening for Warren Zevon. I just forgot about wow. that. Where, up in San Francisco? or That was like Vancouver and... And nice. did we did we open for Neil Sedaka or was I just hanging with the band? I can't remember. <laughs> so long it must have been a good time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we had a pretty good time. That is that's, that's awesome. So what was the transition? You said obviously there's other opportunities. Was it right away thinking I was always musically curious. So and I knew there was a lot more going on because of the way I grew up. And I did get myself educated in the midst of all that, musically. Yeah. And uh, at one point, this has got to be in the mid-70s, earlier, maybe 73, 74, I went to my father and I said, you know, I think I'd like to learn to orchestrate music. And at that time, I was in whatever band I was in, and I was producing records and touring and all of that. But I wanted to do that. And he said, okay, fine pick something, orchestrate it, and bring it to me. So I, I found a uh, piano piece I'd been working on, and I orchestrated it, and I brought it to him, and I guess it was good enough because uh, he let me work for him on his films. I was like the number three guy at the time, and uh, there was a lot to learn. But, you know, three years later, I was doing his films by myself. So it, uh, it worked out really well. And I stayed in the rock and roll business even past the time I was a composer. So wow. I, uh, yeah, I recently saw a, uh, 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 what is it, a calendar of mine from the early 80s. And it just blew me away how busy I was doing so many <laughs> different things. I bet it was like studio for band, studio for or like yeah, exactly. That's cool that you kept. That's cool that you have that meeting about a record, meeting about a film, studio, studio, studio. Stay home and write. You know, every day. What was the process like when you're performing? Like one of the early ones was, that I see on here is like Slapshot, working as an orchestrator. Like, what is that like? Are you just in a studio? Is the movie playing and you're playing along with it? Like what it. This is, he's writing the music. Oh, okay. He's seen the film. He's writing the music to uh, notes that his music editor would have prepared, which okay. would which would go like, we're going to put music here, and it starts at this point, and then three seconds in this happens, and 45 seconds in this happens, and... That's how you know how to sync the music with what's happening on the screen. I mean, it is it gets more technical than that, but that's basically how it works. And that was before computers. Now I can just look at it yeah. know, on my screen and, and write to it, but you couldn't do it then. And so he would write the music based on what I said. Uh, he would write it on maybe four lines of uh, music, look like, you know, something being played by four instruments. 
And then I would take that as the orchestrator and expand it out to a full orchestra based on either his, uh, based on either his handwritten notes on the music that he gave me or our conversations or just my understanding of what he wanted. And then a day or so later, it would show up on the recording stage and they'd, they'd record it. That's awesome. So and no, I, I see for, for Linda Ronstadt, I see it says album, album arranger. So that's what you did. You put the, oh, the uh, I couldn't really think of uh, what to name it. Well, uh, she was doing a bunch of songs from the, that the band I was in was doing. Oh, okay. So, um, cause that's how Linda worked. She'd find something she liked and do a bunch of their songs. She did it with Warren Zevon too. Oh, wow. And another friend of mine, Carla Bonoff and, and just various people. So, um, yeah, I was there to sort of help guide it through the, uh, arrangements that we were using and adjust to what she wanted to do. So, yeah. So, so you're doing this, you're, you're still doing the band, you're, you know, working as an orchestrator. Like at what point was there like that switch that you were like, this is what I want to do full time. Did you try to at one point try to do both? And then it just got to the point that you had to pick one. I'd love to say it was a conscious decision like that. (laughs) I was just following the work. Yeah. The work was coming from this direction. So I, I followed that and I stopped looking in the other direction. I mean, maybe I could have done more, but uh, I, there was no, I didn't have that, that burning desire, you know, and you really have to have that in music or I suppose any artistic endeavor. If you don't have it, what are you doing there? Yeah, no, that's true. And, and from what I've heard from other people, like music, you, you really have to love it because you can't make, unless you're like, have a lot of big concerts or album deals, you're not like making a lot. I don't know if that was the case with what you were doing. Uh, composer roles, okay, but oh, commo- I know. I mean, composer. I'm talking about. I'm talking about actually like playing in bands. Oh, forget it. <laughs> <laughs> Although I have to say, there is a lot more in live work than there used to be. You know, it used to be that if you were in a band, when I was in a band, you'd make a record and the record company would subsidize your tour to sell the record. Well, now it's exactly the other way around. You make a record so that people will come see your tour, which is where you make the money. That's true. It's crazy, yeah. But in any event, for me, uh, it just, you know, my priorities changed. It was a little harder to stay up all night partying and play the next day. Yeah. Just was. And the work was coming from another direction. And I did have a burning desire as far as being a composer was concerned. Um, In the rock and roll world, I wasn't usually the songwriter. I was never the singer. So, uh, and even, you know, I I did produce a number of records, but as far as the band thing goes, I was rarely the, one of the main people. And, uh, which was fine. You know, I liked being a bass player. But there was more for me in the, in this other area. Do you remember the first time you were like a comp- like the composer? So the first one I see on here is Silent Rage. Was that the first one? That was no. There was another one before that, and I can't remember the name. So it's probably not on my on my uh, probably list. yeah. But it was an episode of something 
that a friend of mine, no time or just didn't want to, I can't remember. And he said, here, you write it. And I went, okay. And so I'm up at my house with a pad of paper and a piano and there's a power outage. So that wasn't going to work. So I took my little tiny keyboard, you know, electronic keyboard. And we went down to a friend's house about two miles away that still had power. And I wrote the thing on her kitchen table, you know, overnight. And that was my first experience as a composer. That's cool. Um, Silent Rage was early on. I don't think it was the first thing. That was a Chuck Norris film. It was, yeah. Um, that was early on. Uh, like everything else, I got that job because I knew somebody. Oh, uh, yeah. That's how That's how everything, for the most part, that's how it starts. And then you just have to seize the opportunities. You can get the opportunity from knowing someone, but right. then if you don't nail it, there's going to be a point that they're going to be like, there's so many actors in Hollywood that you see yeah. them in so much. And then you're like, they're not too good. And then it's like, Hey, what happened to that guy? You have to be able to do both things. Yeah. 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 Silent rage. Interesting. Most people think I started working because my father was steering me towards work. It didn't happen that way at all. Uh, and I, I don't really make a big deal out of it unless someone asks, but all my early work came through my rock and roll connections. Wow. Either members of band or old bands went into the television or film industry and I knew them. So I knew other people and things just happened that way. Look at that. Everybody got out. Everybody got out of the rock and roll and they went into TV and film. Well, a lot of people did. Not everybody. Yeah. No, I know. You know, I am thankful that I was never just, on the edge of being successful enough to keep going, right? Yeah. Keep going, 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 and never quite having it work. Uh, you know, I, I at some point I knew it was the I was approaching the uh, precipice, so I just stopped before I had. To. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what was like the turning point for you? Because it's like with anybody, like uh, actors, cinematographers, you have like that one job you do that is like the billboard for like your resume like what was the what was that one for you that they were like oh peter i want you to do like you did in blank was there had, any movie i had two i had um two projects for lucasfilm called oh, awesome. the ewok adventure and the ewok something else yeah in, in the mid 80s and like, I'm like the first not John Williams guy to be writing this music you know, in the Star Wars universe, which was pretty damn scary. And uh, a year later, I started doing a TV series called 21 Jump Street. Nice. So those were both like really noticeable. And that's what it was. You know, someone said to my father many years ago when he was struggling said what you need to secure yourself is two hits back to back. And that was kind of that for me, the Lucasfilm stuff and 21 Jump Street. That was a big show. Yeah. And then it was like, okay, I'm here. Didn't make and it. And it looks, oh, I'm sorry. What were you saying? I said, okay, I'm here. Not that it made it a whole lot easier, but at least I wasn't struggling against, you know, who are you? Yeah, that's true. No, it looks like from there, like you worked on 
uh, like so many like really good TV shows. I worked a lot. Yeah, I worked a lot. Yeah, it's really I lo- I loved Weird Science. I talked to Vanessa Angel. That was a great TV series. You- yeah, another great show. And like you had a chance to like Alfred Hitchcock, like that's a really cool thing. One episode of that. Oh, yeah. that's still cool. You know, I know it. It looks that way, maybe. No. But you know, for everybody, it's like another gig. You know, I one of the last things I orchestrated was Ghostbusters. That's amazing. People lose their minds about. But by the time the movie was released, we were on three jobs past that you know yeah just you just churn and you keep going and you keep going and you don't think about it and it's at least in the music world and uh and now you know 38 years 38 years later um amazed ghostbusters being what it is you know i conduct ghostbusters with a live score now that's awesome they show the the movie and i'm the conductor doing the score live and if you had told me that was going to happen 38 years ago, um, I, I would have wanted some of whatever you were smoking. Yeah. I think people were under, nobody could picture the future of like the digital and things being on demand and no. like easy access. Cause I've interviewed directors that thought like their movies would be like forgotten about in five years. Cause that's not, not like that happened with all like the magnificent sevens, like the great escapes, escape from out, like those movies stood the test of time. Maybe if we weren't even in the digital age when they were at the touch of a button, but there right. were so many movies that were just like sort of forgotten about, but it's not possible now. No, you can know everything is available. It's amazing. Yeah. You yeah. know, I, when, this is when I was flying to Europe to record one of the Ewok movies. I don't remember which one I was flying with my dad. Uh, Cause he had a recording session in Europe as well. Nice. And he's, sitting next to me uh, and I'm going through all my scores because I'm conducting this thing. And it was going to be the first time that I really conducted a major orchestral score. That was shitless. And <laughs> he's in the next seat and he's writing a score, right? No keyboard, nothing. And so, you know, we're landing and I, I say, listen, uh, how are, how are you able to do that? And not that it, not that it was like magic, but I was, cause I know people do it, but I just was curious about his process. And his response to me was, look, just, just wait till you've been doing it another 30 years and you'll be fine. Um, which was, might've been true, except that, um, you know, five years after that, I was doing everything on a computer, which was totally <laughs> unknown at the time. Maybe it was 10 years after that, but, you know, things changed drastically. What was your process like for that? Like for like the Ewok, just as an example, did you, they send you like cuts of the movie? I know you talked about like the, oh, that's what it is. Yeah, I would have, I would have, uh, well, in this case, it was beta tapes. Beta max, yeah. Beta of the, of the movie. So I could see it and it would have time code on it so I could tell when in the film it was at least until they re-edited it but it, it was just something to gauge you know how many seconds would go by before I needed to do something different and then my music editor would type up notes about 
where it's supposed to start, where it's supposed to stop. Because I would look at this film first with somebody, with yeah. George in this case. And, you know, we'll start the music here, we'll stop it there. And so the music editor would take note of that and then type up all the notes so I could see them and, uh, and would refer to anything that we had discussed about what the music was supposed to do. So that's the process. And then I would write it and then someone else would orchestrate it. And uh, then the, both of these were recorded in uh, Munich. So, you know, it was kind of a big deal. But the real process of writing the Ewok music, for me, was deciding who I wanted to be when I wrote yeah. it. Because I had never done a, an orchestral project of that scope before. So I knew who I didn't want to be. There were two things I didn't want to be. One was my father. Yeah. And the other one was John Williams. Yeah, exactly. So I, I needed to figure out something else for myself. So that was the real project. And, and like, is there like, how long is the process? I know everything's not the same, but like, is it a process like for that movie? Was that something that took like a few months, like a year? Was it six weeks, six weeks? Wow. For, yeah. And that's, um, that's pretty standard. I mean, in it some is. in some productions, it's a very generous amount of time. Really? And, oh yeah. Well, computers again have changed things a lot. That's true. Yeah. Um, and the whole composing world is a little different than it used to be because where I was a solitary person, uh, composers, you know, at a certain level now will have assistants running around and people doing this, that, and the other thing, uh, and assigning, you know, you write this piece of music and you write that piece of music, but I'm going to show you the style. And so it, it, it can be a very different process. Not everybody works like that, but many people do. Yeah. It's like the director and the producer, like people all around and they give you some kind of like, and I just think it's so fascinating because it's so music's so important. I think music and sound and visually like those are like music brings you in. Like it makes the movie. Right. Right. Um, and it also works on a nonverbal level. It's, it's, yeah. it's an amazing thing because how many people have you asked about music in a movie and they say, Oh, I didn't pay attention. I wasn't aware of it, <laughs> which is a good thing because you don't need to be aware of it. It's going to do what it's going to do to you anyway, whether you know it or not. Yeah. Evoking emotion, giving you like kind of hints what's coming, like it, foreshadowing, like you can hear that in the music, like ominous tones. And you're like, oh, something's happening. Well, <laughs> and music cuts deep. What did we have before we had speech? We had sound. Yeah. <laughs> to go back to what you mentioned before. So some of these series that you worked on, there's like one-offs that they call be like, Hey Peter, we need you to come in to do one episode of blank. Yeah. Or sometimes they would call me in. We need you to do one episode and maybe you'll do more, you know, with those kinds of things. Yeah. It, you know, everybody's just struggling to get through the next day, basically. Yeah. And yeah. You hook on with a show that you do a hundred episodes of, and sometimes you do one and sometimes you do 17. 
it's all different. Is it difficult to do one when you come in for like one or like your homework wise? Are you like listening to the previous episodes to get some kind of like tonal feel or are you just going with your own instincts? Uh, well, it depends on why I'm there. If I'm yeah. there, they're trying me out because maybe they want to do me to do stuff. I, I'll do me. So they'll yeah. either do me or they won't. If I'm there because their regular guy can't do it, then I'm doing their regular guy. So, you know, it's all, it's, it's all, everyone's different. Every single yeah. one. Different. And you never know how people are going to react. You just don't. It is so entirely subjective. I did one episode of something. Yeah, I think it was one. This is years ago. And I did the episode. And I knew all the people who were working on it regularly, but somehow this one fell to me. And I got, I turned it in and I got notes from the producer, which is normal. You turn the music in, they give you notes, say, can you change that? Start this here instead of there. That kind of thing. And his notes were terrifically insulting. It was just, oh. it was amazing. I mean, it was very <laughs> sit around and, and try to think of the most insulting things there? Does it just come naturally to you? And, and so I got his notes. I made what adjustments I could. And, and I went away. I figured I'd never hear from them again. And I didn't. However, I, can, I looked from my, um, from my royalty reports, I could see that they edited that music or parts of that music into 16 more episodes. So apparently they liked it better than they did. Or the other answer is the editor liked it and used it. And the producer who wrote me those notes just wasn't paying attention. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so Peter, like, do you remember like early on, like, I know obviously like silent rage and other movies you worked on before that, like meatballs, but did you like do the old go to the movie theater to sort of like hear yourself or get the audience reactions to your music? Um, no, not usually. I mean, there wouldn't be an audience reaction to the music usually. That's true. Sometimes I would go to a theater to see how it was mixed in with the, uh, with everything else usually with a disappointing result. But no, I mean, I've heard it by the time I'm done. And I, if, I'm, if I'm there when they're mixing the movie to begin with, then I've heard it all. And yeah. uh, the last thing I want to do is go to a theater and see something I've seen 600 times already. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Especially when you get the Betamax and you're watching over and over again. At least you have access to it. There's so many actors, they don't see any of it. And then they go to the movie theater and they're like, oh my God, I'm cut out of the movie. Or they use the different scenes and stuff. Yeah, but there's also people, you know, actors who won't see themselves in movies because it's too um, disruptive for their yep. their process, their internal process. You don't want to know, you know, because what you're doing is working, obviously, because you're getting hired. So why try to analyze it? Yeah, yeah. I feel that way about me, actually. Yeah, going back to listen to old music or old scores. I once did a survey. This is just for myself because I've written music with all the time in the world. And I have written music where it needs to be done tomorrow or sooner, right? So 
I did a little survey of stuff I had all the time in the world to write versus stuff I wrote under duress to see if there's really a difference in quality or the depth of the idea and all of that. There wasn't. <laughs> no, di The only difference was some of the detail work in the quick stuff was a little more ragged, but something that I think only I would notice. And, and which was fascinating. It made me um, trust my own process a lot more than I, I would have otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. I think as anybody, anytime you like an artist, you always catch the mistakes, but other people will never really notice them because they're so minuscule and not something that they would think, think about. I had an old music teacher who used to say about that. The minute you're satisfied, you're dead. <laughs> That's true. You don't always can get better the more you do something. But then when I listen like a decade later, I, I'm like, oh, okay, that's okay. And my favorite thing, and because and I've written so much music for so many years, is occasionally I'll stumble across something that I really like and go, wow, I wrote that? Cool. <laughs> do you have like a favorite from over the years that you're that like you just said that you're like, Oh my God, I can't believe I did that. No, that, that's a little more incredulous than I actually get. <laughs> okay. Or like kind of, oh, that's cool. But um, a favorite? No. And if I do have a favorite, it's usually for extremely technical reasons. Yeah. You know, and not, not uh, you know, big music with a capital M reasons. Yeah. I, I'm pleased when it comes to the two I mentioned, the Ewok films, I'm very pleased with the fact that I was able to write my first big orchestral scores, you know, and which was rather terrifying. I mean, I'm, that's a good moment for me. And also yeah. Jump Street, which was one of the very first uh, shows done in a home studio with samples. It was very early on. It was, I don't know about revolutionary, but there were very, very few people doing that. And that felt great. That felt like, yeah, we're right in the, in the forefront of something here. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Uh, uh, many things about that show felt like that. Did they ever make you, did you ever go up to Vancouver, like to go on set or anything? Oh, yeah. Nice. Yeah, a ton of friends working on it. So I was up there a lot. Nice. Yeah, that was like the boom. That Right around then was the Vancouver boom that they were like, wow, we could do it a lot cheaper up here. And they filmed so many shows, so many movies at that point. And now it's like the Hallmark capital of the world. That's where Hallmark films ev like most of their movies because it's so much cheaper. Yeah. The dollar, the dollar stretches. Yeah. Well, that was, we had, we had a lot of fun in those days because we knew we had something good going, you know, from Patrick, the creator to, you know, the actors to the sound people, all everybody. And it was a really nice feeling. Yeah. And then even, and then the guy, the guy that was in 
I can't think of his name from 21 Trump Street. He goes on to be in Weird Science. He plays the brother. No. No? The guy, one of the cops? I don't think so. Maybe I'm wrong. No, I, I thought the one guy. Or maybe he just looks familiar. I don't think so. No. <laughs> but there might have been. I mean, people might have appeared. Yeah, the- yeah. No, the guy had that familiar face. I don't know if he was on another cop show at that time, but then he uh, ended up being like the, the like the kind of dickhead brother on uh, Weird Science <laughs> for all those years. But I uh, remember, yeah, no, it's a. I don't. I barely, I only remember because at that age, it's like your formal years. And I just remember watching that on USA Network all the time, and right. Vanessa was on it, so I watched it all the time. Weird Science is one of those jobs where they had an original composer who did the first, I think, four episodes, and they didn't like what he was doing. And and I did the next 88. I think it was 88. That's a good gig. That is good. Yeah. <laughs> so one thing I thought was pretty cool, how did it come to be that you started the Elmer Bernstein concert, like the concert series that you would go around the country and – doing your father's scores you know i don't know if i so much started it as it found me there is there is a market for his music in in world and um in 2013 i i did a film music festival in spain where they used where his music was the centerpiece of it uh, for the older set. I mean, there were a lot of young guys there too, uh, me among them, but they, they did a whole concert of his music, which they asked me to conduct. I had conducted uh, music at his, one of his memorial concerts. And, and they asked me if I would like to do that. I think it came through my agent at the time, come to think of it. And I said, sure. So we went over there. I had a fantastic time. It was great. Somehow I made contact with another orchestra. I don't remember how that happened that wanted to do somewhat of the same thing. So I did it there. And then, you know, I did a few more. And then, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the film with a live score thing that's happening started to become really big. And it's great for orchestras because they can sell tickets to this. And yeah. You know, it's important because it, 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 it subsidizes some of the more artistic things they do. And um, I got a call from the Ghost Corp, the people that did Ghostbusters and own the franchise. And they wanted to do this. So we put it together. And uh, that was in 2017, maybe. So 17, 18, 19, of course, pandemic. And this year I'm back doing it again. So I've done a bunch of those. And then um, I got a call to do The Great Escape. Love it. Which was great. I'd like to do more. Uh, So, and I've done other concerts. I've also was responsible for, for about a decade for getting the music out to orchestras that wanted to play it. So I made a lot of contacts that way. And it just, it just kind of happened. I really like going back to my roots as a performer. 
that's the best that's part. Be pretty, that's got to be pretty special. And it, with like as a kid, you don't know like composers or who's doing the music. But I just remember my dad having the DVD of The Great Escape. And it was like when DVDs first came out and right. they didn't have anything fancy about like all these special menus. And I remember I think it just said like play and uh, maybe like behind the scenes. But it always played the music. So my dad fell asleep watching the movie. It would never stop. It would just be uh, the dun, 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 over and over again. So what are some things? Obviously, you've done so much, you know, musically. Is there any things on the horizon that you're gonna be doing? Do you still play like music? Like in, in a band, do you still play bass or anything? Oh, I'm the only person stupid enough to hire me to play bass. <laughs> <laughs> No, those, I mean, I have them. Hold on. That's cool. Here's one of my, here's one of my babies. Look at that. And you know how to tune it now. Oh, I do. But um, <laughs> no, those, those days are gone. It takes a certain set of muscles to play a bass guitar all day. And I don't have that. <laughs> but I can still come up with a good part if I want to record it. So yeah. I do. About a year ago, I started composing in partnership with my half-sister, Emily. Oh, wow. We have the same father. And that's been great. That is the newest thing I've been doing, and it's, it's really worked out great. She had my job as his orchestrator after me. So oh, no we, way. That's awesome. Yeah, we have a lot of the same training, uh, a lot of the same point of view, so that has worked out really well. We know how to work with family, obviously. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, we've been doing it about a year. We've done a couple of uh, documentaries, one, one which was nominated for a music award, which was great. Oh, wow. And, uh, and yeah, that's um, kind of the most interesting thing that's happened to me in that world for a while. Yeah. Uh, on the... Uh, concert and conducting side i got i have a number of things i'm trying to get happening it's always hard uh the the time frame in orchestra world is a year or three so you have oh, to just be, to plan it out to like uh, be able to like secure a venue and everything very patient yeah that makes sense very patient so there's that and you know there's always 40 other side projects so yeah any, did you ever do the Ghostbusters live on the East Coast in like New York or? I just did it in Chicago. I've nice. done it I mean, in the East Coast. Where have I done it? That's a very good question. Oh, Rochester. I did it up in Rochester. Oh, okay. Nice. 2024 is going to be the 40th anniversary of Ghostbusters. So there will be some events, hopefully in New York City. I mean, the movie takes place in New York City, for God's sake. So it's got to happen, right? Why would not that happen? Why would not that happen? Why would that not happen? <laughs> you know, plus and the, and there's another movie in the works, right? So maybe they they should plan it out to come out in 2024. I think they'd be perfect on their mind uh, about when it's going to come out besides <laughs> the concert. But yes, yeah. Yeah, and I also worked on the uh, last one, Afterlife. No, as, which is great. Yeah, as a what, score consultant, whatever that means. 
Um, but they really wanted to tie the old movie to the new movie. And some of that involved the music. So that worked out really well. That's important. I think when you have a movie that's been so long, I know they did the, they did like this sort of like reboot one, but it was like a cool thing to be able to do that. So you said, you don't know what that was. What did you do? Was it just being, being there to offer like some advice or, or notes? Pretty much. Okay. I was there for every piece of music and all the recording and in the writing process. So, you know, I had a lot of input, uh, you know, how much of it made it into the final score. I, I don't, I, I couldn't say, but, uh, they asked. So I answered. I thought it was a beautiful movie. I thought it, I, I cried. I'm not going to lie. Like Harold Ramis. That was great. I was worried about it. Uh, obvious. Well, not obviously, but I was cause I couldn't see how they could follow, uh, the original movie without any of the original cast really. Uh, who were all incredibly gifted people. Yep. But uh, but Jason made it work. He made it work well. I feel like you uh, you and your dad followed uh, Bill Murray around a lot, movie wise. Meatballs, Stripes. Well, we followed Ghost... around a lot. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> that's I, that's Ivan's doing. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That which is good when you have people that you trust that that's what makes the it's one less thing you have to worry about in the movie making process. I'm sure same thing with you. You're like, oh, I know I can count on this oh, person, this person to do that. So I don't have to I can focus on what I need to focus on. Well, Ivan and John Landis met my father at Animal House. So Oh yeah. Oh well this the other story is that I knew John Landis because uh, we went to high school together. No way. I think you're going to say you worked on Schlock. No, no. Well, no, I Schlock, <laughs> but I was, I was there for hanging around the filming. Oh, uh, really? I interviewed Eric Robert. Well, I interviewed Eric Robertson's wife and Eliza was in, was in that. Yeah. And she was an animal ass. Yeah. I went to school with Eliza. I've known Eliza for God, I don't know, 55 years. or. Oh more. my God. That's yeah. great. Yeah. When did you talk to them? I talked to them a few years ago. Haven't seen them for a while. Yeah, no, she was really, she was great. And just her background, like her parents and, you know, what they did in like screenwriting and, uh, oh, no, yeah. and, and then an animal house. And then she's like, cause she had a different role in that movie and then she was pregnant and then they gave her the, the other role and she was pregnant with her son during the filming of animal house. Yeah. She had a great role in animal house. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Eliza is, um, what's the word kind of a foundational person in my life. Oh yeah, she well she she's foundational and she grounds Eric very well. Yeah. <laughs> so was that like a usual thing? I know you went up to set for like Twenty One Jump Street, but like for most movies and shows you worked on, did you so, go to uh, set? Just depends. Yeah. If I was personal friends with people, yeah, I'd go to sets or I'd just go to sets that I'm not even writing music for when I'm personal friends with people. Just to you know, be there. Nice. But um, getting back to the story, I went to school with John Landis, who met my father because he came to, to the school to speak. And John was already, John was always going to be a film director, you know, from the time he was 15. So he was really into meeting my father. And, you know, fast forward to, oh, about 10 years later, 
and he's making animal house and we we don't know what he's well i knew what he was doing i'm sure my dad didn't john goes to universal and says i want elmer bernstein to score my film and universal said you know their music department said you know i don't think elmer bernstein is going to return your call actually but uh but of course john knew better because he knew him yeah, yeah. my father took john and i to see the beatles Wow. Where, where the Hollywood Bowl? No, uh, at Dodger Stadium, their second to last. <sighs> nice. Yeah. So he did, you know, my dad did return the call. And uh, I remember looking at the uh, tapes of the movie, some of the raunchier stuff, you know, as yeah. we were, as he was thinking of what to write, we were talking about orchestration or whatever. And we're looking at this this tape, and he turns to me and says, "Can they get away with that in a movie?" <laughs> because it was, you know, it was like the first R-rated comedy. Yeah, and that was like a change for your dad, right? Was that like the first type of movie he did, like a big a comedy? Yeah, it was an Academy Award winning. No, I know serious scores for the most part, and suddenly he's doing, you know, what we used to call youth comedies. You got kidding. But um, Ivan and John loved him and he respected them because they were very good at what they did. And the movies were insanely successful. So why not? Right. He stuck with it for uh, about seven, eight years. And then he said, I've had enough of comedies. (laughs) Yeah. But I mean, the, the, the movies of the era were Animal House and Stripes, and Trading Places, Airplane, Ghostbusters, Three Amigos, and, you know, on, and there another, you know, an equal amount of comedies that weren't any good. Yeah. But, yeah, he became the comedy guy for a while, and I orchestrated all that stuff. That's great. Some, like you mentioned, those are some of the best of all time. Like, Airplane is, on some lists, it's like one or two always. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Did you, so it's so cool that you could like, so you knew, I guess just growing up in it, like you said, your high school was like a bunch of kids that their dads were composers. So you would just be able to be like, Hey, you know what? I want to go hang out on set one day. That was like a normal Tuesday. Well, no, I didn't do that because that was our dads who gave a crap. That's yeah. true. Yeah. I want to hear what my dad's doing. I'm, I want to listen to the Beatles. I want to hear yeah. what record sounds like, you know? Yeah. But like in the eighties, like while you're working, like you were saying, like some movies, if I was interested in, you'd just be able to, like, what were some movies that you would just pop in on set that were like, Oh, what movies was I on the set of? Oh, I got, I don't know. Uh, Ghostbusters for sure. Yeah. You know, by that time, my father and Ivan had a pretty tight relationship and Ivan, you know, just wanted to show him what was going on and get him thinking. So yeah, we were there, drove around the sets and watch some filming um jump street of course i actually tried not to be on a set because it's just boring if you're not doing anything yeah it's boring (laughs) man peter this has been awesome man i'm so happy that we connected and uh yeah i've always wanted to talk somebody that was a composer uh just to like learn about the process and you know how everything works and uh i'm amazed that you've talked many people i know 
Yeah, no, people have been so kind. I, I think his people, some people was word of mouth. Like Eric really enjoyed it. And William Sadler really enjoyed it. Like he was the one that really changed it for me. When I talked to William Sadler, I was only doing this like two months and I would send out a million emails and like one person would get back to me. Another million, one person would get back. But like William Sadler's uh, manager, agent, like just forward in the email like that day. And I was out to eat with my wife and our, our daughter was like six months at the time. And it was like the next day and she, and the girl was like, yeah, he'd be happy to do it. Can you do it tomorrow at 11? And I was like, wow. Oh shit. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And then, and then whenever I send emails out to people, I'll be like, Oh, I interviewed blank, blank, blank. And they're always like, Oh, William Sadler. And then it would go to when I would include like Eric or Vernon Wells or Joe Alves. I mean, how did you get to Eric? Eric, uh, this is kind of a funny story. So I interviewed Robert Hayes from Airplane. <laughs> I did. And Robert, Robert I, was awesome. On 50-50, yeah. Yeah, that was a that was a Canon film. It was yeah. him and uh, RoboCop. I can't think of his name. Yeah, that uh, guy. Yeah, I Peter scored, Weller. Peter Weller. I scored that movie. Yeah. So I uh, yeah. So I interviewed Robert Hayes. It was great. And so somebody reached out to me. I don't know if you remember, I don't know if it was like a syndicated show or you were in New York at the time at all, but uh, Opie and Anthony, they were like a big, they were right after Howard Stern in New York. So okay. when Howard left 92.3 and he went to see when he went to like Sirius or XM, these guys took over. They were like sh- trying to be Howard, like shock jocks. So they broke up, but like one of the guy's managers called me and said, oh, hi, Doug. I, I saw you interviewed Robert and funny story was, Robert Hayes in the eighties was the best friends with Anthony's father and was his best man at his wedding. And, uh, he'd love to interview him on a show and like talk to him about like hanging with his dad. And so I'm like, Oh yeah, sure. I, I like, who am I? Like, I was like, I can, I can send you an email. I'm not going to give you like phone numbers. And the guy was like, Oh, thanks so much for doing that in exchange. I'll, I'll connect you with Eric Roberts. And I'm like, all right. Great. So, you, you know, what's crazy about the things, you know, that, when I look back is that no cell phones, right? Back then. Yeah. And the photos that I don't have from, from those days, you know, with, with George Lucas or Johnny Depp or Bo Derek or, you know, whoever it was we were, or, Oh, for that matter, uh, Glenn Fry, if you want to go further back. Yeah. And, uh, I do have actually photos of Linda because we were just around each other so much, but you know, it's just the the photos that you don't have that if it was in the modern era, I'd be post. Well, I'd probably be posting them all over my social media. Yeah. Those days it was the height of uncoolness to, you know, if I was with George Lucas to say, Hey George, can I get a picture with you? It was, no, you don't, you don't do that. It's very different. Did you ever, did you ever keep things over the years from like movies that you worked on? Oh like yeah. Any like keeps it. Oh, cool. What are some of the things you kept? Like your notes or anything or. A lot of that stuff. Yeah. I have, I, I orchestrated in that period when I was orchestrating for my father and he was working for John Landis. John directed the, uh, thriller video yeah and there's about seven minutes of 
score in this thriller video, which I orchestrated. That's awesome. And I have those pages. That's one of my. Uh, that's one of my favorites. But I have all my Ewok scores, and I have all that stuff. I mean, you, yeah. you, you keep that stuff. It's important. Yeah, because you never know. So, like, it's just good to look back on one day. But no, that that uh, thriller video, I always play it at Halloween. Like, I set up a projector on my front lawn for the kids coming by, and I play it and I repeat. And just how good it was. And yeah. and just the makeup. Like, obviously, people knew at that point who Rick Baker was because he was friends. With, he worked a lot with John Landis because they had a connection. Yeah. On, he worked on Schlock and and – and American Wolf in, in London, but like that video, because that was everywhere. Like yeah. every Halloween that was like at every party. When I was a kid, you saw it over and over again. And just the makeup effects are unreal. That was another one of those, one of those, you know, jobs that took literally three days. And then we, we moved on. You didn't think about it. Right. Yeah. I mean, I got to meet Michael Jackson. That was another photo I don't have. Um, <laughs> And that was okay, you know. Yeah. But um and then you you just you just move on. That's all it is. Because you can't, you know, you gotta go you always gotta put your foot forward and go on to the next job, you know? That's correct. That's correct. Awesome, Peter. Well, this is cool. Wasn't that great? Peter was uh, asking me questions. Uh some of them I edited out, but it was so nice. He was really you know, he, he wanted to know about how we get people to be on the show and the process, like my big moments. So it was kind of like what we talked about with his, with doing those Star Wars uh, Ewok sequels. But yeah, he was so cool. Uh, a lot of a lot of cool uh, things that I always remember because it's so many connections to different movies and different actors that we talked to and people that worked on them. But it was cool. Like I even admitted to him, like my dad was a huge, huge, you know, fan of the great escape, watched it all the time. So talking to, you know, that he composes it for his father and those Elmer Bernstein tours that he does all over Europe and the ghostbusters ones. I did. That was pretty neat. So hopefully the ghost, but like he mentioned 40 year anniversary next year. So we're going to make sure we cover the second one for next year. That'd be like perfect, uh, perfect harmony. So yeah, so your homework, watch Ewoks, The Battle for Endor. And that is on Disney Plus for free, which everybody has. How can you not have Disney Plus? Even if you don't have kids, it is awesome. Uh, they're not a sponsor, but I just wanted to tell you guys that. <laughs> yeah, so don't forget to review, rate, share our podcast. Follow us on all social media at Sequels Only. And don't forget to check out our website, SequelsOnly.com. Good night.